I've been excited to have the opportunity to share this material uh, with you for a while now. And you'll notice various links between what I say in this talk and the talk that Peter May has just given. So if you're listening on the podcast, uh, do look up uh, Peter May's talk on the Highfield Church Southampton Reasonable Faith uh, podcast site for the Reasonable Faith course. You look at high Christology, and that is uh, a view of Jesus as being divine as well as human. A high Christology in the letter or the epistle of James, the brother of Jesus. Now, Mark Mittelberg notes that the common claim today is often made that uh, belief in Jesus as a, a unique, divine person arose long after he walked on earth. Particularly such books as Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code have popularized the notion that it wasn't until, according to the Da Vinci Code, the Council of Nicaea, the Church Council of Nicaea, which happened in about 325 AD, uh, that uh, three centuries, therefore, uh, after Christ was around, that Christians started worshipping him as the divine son of God. Before that, uh, people just thought of him as human. Uh, atheist Matthew Neal, in his books An Atheist's History of Belief, asserts Jesus had never considered himself a god, and that in the first decades after his death, Jesus still appears to have been regarded by his followers, including Paul, as thoroughly human and not a god. But by the early second century, Jesus had become fully supernatural in people's thinking. This is what's called a so-called evolutionary Christology. An idea of Jesus that starts out as you know, human and maybe a prophet and so on, gradually becomes more and more exalted until he becomes thought of as God a long way down the line. Atheist John W. Loftus claims that Christians uh, gradually developed a higher, more glorified view of Jesus in a process of deification that he says took at least 70 years to get to that divine view of Jesus. In other words, an evolutionary Christology crucially holds that belief in Jesus being divine emerged after the eyewitness generation. Here's a, a chart showing the dates uh, accrued to uh, New Testament letters. And I've compiled this from various uh, study Bibles, surveys of the New Testament, etc. So if we take... Uh, the crucifixion of Jesus here at about 33. And then this is the first century. This is when the letters of the New Testament were written. And here we have, just after 100 AD, what we could call the Loftus line. This is the point at which John Loftus says people started thinking of Jesus as divine. 
So, of course, the, the New Testament Gospels were written within the first century as well, so you wouldn't find any thinking of Jesus as divine within the New Testament. Uh, how Loftus can think that, I don't know. Uh, but particularly interesting in this regard is to look at the high Christology of James, which, as I will argue, can be given a very early date. James refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he describes his readers as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about the ones who are blaspheming the noble, a beautiful name, the noble name of him to whom you belong. In James 2.7. We had a few references to about the name in Pete's talk. Now, although the word translated here from the Greek into it as blaspheme, it's a word that can mean speech that just speaks evil of or that reviles non-divine persons, so that the, phrase, the term itself is not uh, nailing down the meaning here because it's equivocal. But the context of use, I think, clearly favours taking that term as a reference to blaspheming in the strongest sense of the term. And indeed, this is how the majority of English translations of the Bible understand the reference. Jesus is Lord. In James 1.1 and 2.1, in light of the Jewish creed or Shema that Peter shared earlier, here at Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. By calling Jesus Lord, early Christians are identifying the risen and ascended Jesus with the Lord of the Old Testament. It's clear from Paul's words, which echo but radically adapt the Jewish creed. This is from 1 Corinthians 8, 6. There is one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. The one Lord of his Jewish faith, Paul now re-identified as the one Father and the one Lord, Jesus. Indeed, Josephus, the Jewish historian, reports that first century Jews refused to address the Roman emperor as Kyrios, as Lord, because they believed the term should only be applied to Yahweh. As Daniel Overman writes, when the early church proclaimed that Jesus is Lord, it was using Kyrios in this exalted sense. What about this phrase of the noble name? This is something that really uh, sparked my line of thinking here. Uh, the Greek word uh, Christanos uh, comes from the word uh, Christos, which means anointed one. It's a Greek translation of the Jewish Messiah or anointed one. And uh, an adjectival ending borrowed from Latin that denotes adhering or belonging to, as, as in slave ownership. And the, the Greek translation of the Jewish Bible, the Septuagint, uses the word Christos to translate the Hebrew for Messiah, one who's anointed. And Christians are called upon by the name of or belong to and or are slaves of the Christ, where Christ is the noble name of him, i.e. of Jesus, to whom Christians belong. Indeed, the New Living Translation of James 2.7 makes this very explicit in the translation. They say, aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear. Now, Christians originally described themselves as followers of the way. 
Look at John 14, 6, Acts 19, 9, 23, 22, 4, 24, 14, 24, 22, perhaps Romans 3, 17, and 9, 31. The use of the term Christian, as Peter was mentioning, began as outsider language. This, of course, the use of the, the, the way, really goes back to Jesus' phrase about I am the way, the truth, and the life. Early Messianic Jewish Christian would have said, I am a follower of the way, meaning I follow Jesus. Now Tacitus informs us in his annals, 1544, that the Emperor Nero pegged the 64 AD Great Fire of Rome upon those, quote, whom the crowd called Christians, outsider language. We can see from 1 Peter 4.16, written in Rome, that this terminology had been appropriated by at least parts of the Jesus-following community by 62 AD. It says, uh, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Again, bearing the name. Luke reports that Herod Agrippa II teased Paul the Apostle in AD 61. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Luke notes that the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch, Acts 11.26. And the context there, again, suggests the term Christian was already in use by critics, if not by Christians themselves, as it were, by about AD 46. And here is a picture of Antioch. So, James 2.7, talking about the noble name, It echoes several Old Testament passages that speak of Israel as the people of God being called upon by God's name. It's an expression borrowed from the Old Testament where it refers, uh, occurs in the sense of one becoming the property of him whose name is called upon him. And it's particularly said of Israel that the name of God was called upon them, uh, the people of God. And literal translations of Old Testament verses make this very clear. Uh, So we have verses like Deuteronomy 28.10. And all the peoples of the land have seen that the name of Jehovah is called upon thee. And so on. 2 Chronicles 7.14, Isaiah 4.1. Let thy name be called over us. Amos 9.12. The nations on whom my name is called. So, one argument. James talks of the noble name of him to whom you belong, and substitutes Christ for God's name that owns God's people in the Old Testament. Ergo, James believes that Jesus Christ is divine. Argument two, James's omission of the noble name to him whom you belong indicates a Jewish idiom for avoiding a direct reference to the name as was mentioned in Peter's talk. Therefore, James believes Jesus to be divine. There's a little quote here from the Expositor's Greek New Testament explaining about that Jewish idiomatic usage. And again, several Bible translations try and make this clear in their translation of James 2.7. So the ISV has the noble name, and it footnotes it with the comment, i.e. God. Or the voice translation actually puts it explicitly within the text to make it clearer. Say, aren't they the ones mocking the noble name of our God 
the one calling us. What about the authorship of James? All of that, those points would hold irregardless of who specifically authored it. But I think there's a good case that it was James, the brother of Jesus. There's unanimous testimony to this from the early church fathers, such as uh, Athanasius, Cyril of Jerusalem, Eusebius, and Oregon. They unanimously attribute it to James, the half-brother of Jesus. And no alternative author was ever proposed in ancient times. Argument number two, an argument by elimination. The, the other men that we know of by the name of James mentioned within the New Testament are generally thought by scholars not to have been prominent enough figures to have written such a, uh, an authoritative general epistle to the church in diaspora. Argument number three, the letter displays interesting local knowledge. James, of course, lived in Jerusalem. His readers are probably found in the regions just outside of Palestine, along the coastline in Syria, perhaps southern Asia Minor. But several allusions in the letter, and particularly there's a reference to the earlier and the later rains. That seems to confirm this location for the author, because it's only along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea that rains come in this sequence. Argument four, the authorial prominence. The, the lack of any qualifying uh, designation specifying which James is writing, that, that actually just opens you know, from James. He doesn't say, well, which James? There are lots of Jameses. Which James are you? You know, it's just kind of, it's taken for granted that the audience of this letter are going to go, oh, James, you know. He's so famous that he's one of those guys you can just refer to by the one name, you know. There's only a few people in the world who get to be that famous, aren't there? You just know them by the one name, Obama. You don't say to me, which Obama, you know. So the opening self-description of James presupposes that he's already known to his readers and feels no need to assert his authority or his credentials in any way. Certainly not in the way that Paul does in some of his letters to churches. And the brother of Jesus would best fit this requirement. Argument number five. There are some interesting linguistic links. If you look in the book of Acts... You see Luke's description of the Council of Jerusalem and recorded there the letter that the church Council of Jerusalem sent to Gentile Christians. And then you compare the language used there with the language used in the epistle of James and you find some interesting linguistic uses of phrases uh, about uh, use of the phrase of brothers, use of the phrase the noble name. And in, in Acts 15, the Gentiles who bear my name. And my beloved brethren, our beloved Barnabas and Paul. So, so along with lots of scholars that I've quoted here but will not read out loud to you, I think there's good reason to agree with, say, Alistair McGrath, that the letter of James was probably written by James, the brother of Jesus. Now that will help us with arguments about dating, although they're not the only way of getting into the arguments about dating. So, so-called liberal scholarship has tended to attribute the epistle of James to an admirer of James, writing under a pseudonym between 80 and 100 AD. But this, even this liberal dating notice completely flatly contradicts the Council of Nicaea thesis of Dan Brown, and the lower end of that dating, the liberal dating, is also incompatible with the at least 70 years to get to divinity that John Loftus proposes. 
even on a liberal dating, it undermines those uh, evolutionary Christologies. So here's the Loftus line. Here's the liberal dating for James. <laughs> the Loftus line's not looking good. But I think there's reasons for dating the epistle pre-66 in favor of an early date, the, the simplicity of the church organization and discipline mentioned, the fact that Christians still met in synagogues, James 2.2, the general Judaic tone, various authors like uh, Scott Hahn and John Drain, Drain argue along these lines. Drain mentions agricultural practices mentioned in the letter that are a type that disappeared for good in Palestine after AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem, but which were widespread in the days of Jesus. Craig Keener says the situation in the letters best fits a period before AD 66, before the Jewish war started. I think there are reasons for dating it before 62. If the author of the epistle of James was indeed James, the brother of Jesus, then um, you'd think the epistle was written prior to his death. And he was martyred in 62, as recorded by Josephus in his Antiquities, Book 20, Chapter 9. And this is confirmed by the chalk ossuary dating to about AD 63, containing the legend, uh, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. At least there was a bit of, if you've heard about this uh, ossuary, you may have heard about the contretemps, uh, about its uh, provenance, whether it was a fake or not, and so on, whether someone had got an old ossuary and scratched in a, uh, a new ne uh, legend on it or added to an old legend or whatever. Uh, I'll just bring to your attention a recent 2014 peer-reviewed paper in the Open Journal of Geology supporting the authenticity of both the ossuary and the full inscription upon it, where they talk about the, the patina on the ossuary surface is matching that in the engravings on it and microfossils in the inscription being naturally deposited. Um, there's the uh, abstract and conclusion from the paper that you can get online at Scientific Research. Uh, it's called uh, The Authenticity of the James Ostery, Open Journal of Geology, 2014. I think there are reasons for dating the epistle pre-48 AD. Luke Timothy Johnson notes that James's speech is shaped by the sayings of Jesus, and when we realize that the form of some of the more certain allusions in the letter are actually simpler in form than what's called the redacted forms of those sayings found in the synoptic gospels, we appreciate that James may be very close indeed to the formative stages of the Jesus tradition. I don't have time to go into this here, but go to my book, Understanding Jesus, or some of the previous podcasts from Reasonable Faith to look at my arguments about datings of the gospels, and I would date Luke to about 61, Matthew to about 61, 63, 65. And that adds to the case for a pre-66 dating of the epistle of James. And indeed, I would argue that Mark was probably published in 49 AD. I think it might have been the publication of Mark's gospel that caused those riots that got everyone kicked out of, of Rome. The parallel between James 1.6 and Mark 11.23-24 suggests James was written part prior to the publication of Mark's Gospel. Also, the Council of Jerusalem in 48-49 would have been relevant to his themes isn't mentioned there. Um, Professor Barry Smith argues for a literary relation between the letters of James and Paul's letters, especially Romans and Galatians, and he argues on the assumption that Paul had read the letter of James before he wrote his letter to the Galatians, and thus that uh, 
the, uh, the latest date for the publication of James's letter must be 48. And also, again, the, the kind of period things that are mentioned in the letter about the poor and the hungry might be inspired by the fact that there, that there were Jewish believers suffering deprivation due to a famine that occurred in 45 to 46, uh, and so on. The persecution uh, under uh, Herod Agrippa I fits the, the details of the letter as well. So there, I think there's strong evidence for agreeing with McGrath that James was written no later than the late 50s or early 60s. And again, with various people up here that I'm not going to bother quoting all the way through, but I think there's even some evidence for saying it was written around 45. A date of 45 AD is not extreme, says Phil Fernandez. But whenever James was written, the author and the audience had clearly arrived at a belief in a divine Jesus. This was not news to them. At some time before the epistle was written. Note James that writes to the diaspora of Jewish Christians. They've already adopted that belief and gone out with it. So that pushes the existence of that belief prior to the writing date of the letter. So there's our plausible date range here. That is 43 to 58 years before the Loftus line. (laughs) Or to put it another way, 12 to 27 years after the crucifixion of Jesus... The epistle of James demonstrates belief in the divinity of Jesus on the part of Jewish Christians. And that evidence, given the authorship arguments, I would say is not merely from an eyewitness of the historical Jesus, but by a family member that we know from John to have been sceptical about the claims of Jesus made prior to his crucifixion. Where best to get those ideas but from the historical Jesus, as the agnostic philosopher Antonio O'Hare argues, and given how embarrassing belief in a crucified Messiah was, the Alex Aminos worship your God graffiti that was also mentioned, as Bart Ehrman says, it's highly improbable that Palestinian Jewish followers of Jesus would have made up the claim that the Messiah was crucified. But what could have overturned the embarrassment of that? Resurrection would certainly do it. Um, In 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions an appearance to James as to why he turned around his ideas. So in sum, the evidence from and about James, the brother of Jesus, shows that high Christology was not the result of a 70-plus year evolution of thought. That within 12 to 27 years of the crucifixion, Jewish monotheists, likely including Jesus' formerly sceptical brother, were treating him on a par with God. That therefore Jesus probably made claims to divinity. That James, the brother of Jesus, went from being sceptical to being martyred for believing in Jesus' divinity despite his embarrassing crucifixion lends credence, I think, to the early Christian claim James met the resurrected Jesus. Thank you.